0: Please be seated for the reading of the Old Testament lesson. The Old Testament lesson appointed for this fourth Sunday in Lent is taken from the book of Numbers, the 21st chapter. From Mount Hor, they set out from the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God the epistle lesson is from Ephesians chapter 2 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God we rise to hear the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel is according to St. John, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. I should give just a little bit of context to this text. This is in John 3, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to visit Jesus by night. And and Nicodemus is very much interested in Jesus and, and learning from him. Anyways, this is where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus about needing to be born again. And Nicodemus, of course, doesn't quite understand what Jesus is talking about because Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? I need, to go be born, I need to go back in my womb of my mother and be born again? And, of course, Jesus says, well, no, that's silly and ridiculous. He says, no, I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth because you are born of flesh. He who is born of the flesh is of flesh. And so you need to be born of the Spirit. You need that rebirth. And so he's talking about holy baptism and the like. And then Jesus goes on in the discourse, and he then comes to this passage that we're going to read, beginning at verse 14, and Jesus actually references the Old Testament lesson that I read to you just a few moments ago. And just as that snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and everyone who looks to him will be rescued, and you're going to hear that now. So Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds become exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Oh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is one that I think many of us in this sanctuary could probably speak from memory. John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Please be seated. Martin Luther referred to John 3.16 as the gospel in the miniature, but its message is anything but miniature, because in this single verse that I just recited to you is the whole gospel. You know, this verse can be divided into three parts, and it makes for a really nice sermon outline. The three parts of this verse can be divided this way. This verse talks about the fact, the act, and the pact of the whole gospel. The fact is that God so loved the world. Now when you stop and think about it, that's really quite an amazing statement when you think about who it is that populates the world. I mean, look at the Old Testament lesson for today. God has taken the people out of slavery in Egypt, and He's bringing them through the wilderness into the promised land eventually. And while they've been in that wilderness, the Lord has provided for their, for their daily needs, their daily bread. And yet, what do we hear the people doing in Numbers chapter 21? Well, what we hear and see are the people of Israel whining grumbling they're saying why have you brought us out of Egypt what to die in this desert there's no bread there's no water and we detest this miserable manna they are ungrateful not just for the conditions in which they find themselves but they're actually ungrateful To God. For it is God who has been providing them with gift upon gift upon gift, including the manna from heaven. And when the people complain and grumble about their situation in life, they're actually complaining and grumbling against God. And so God sends some venomous snakes among them. And we're told in our text that many people die. God chastises His whining children. When we read this text, do we find that we can place ourselves in it? I mean, how many times do we find ourselves complaining, grumbling, whining about the situation in which we find ourselves? God provides us day after day with our daily bread. And yet, what do we find? Oh, Lord, I'm tired of this life. Oh, Lord, why can't You bring something new and fresh into my life? Lord, I'm bored by my life. Why can't there be something more exciting happening in my life? Lord, I'm very tired of this COVID thing. Why is it that I have to wear a mask? Why is it that I still have to maintain social distancing? Lord, can't You please just bring an end to all of this? And all the while, as we grumble and complain and whine about our situation in life, God continues to provide gift upon gift, grace upon grace. And as we grumble and complain about life, about our work, about our government... About everything, it seems, who are we really grumbling and complaining against? But the one who gives us those gifts, God himself. This grumbling and whining really speaks to what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. When he he says to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. This whining and grumbling spirit is just testimony to the fact that that we are sinful people. And as sinful people, we do grumble and we do complain against God and for the blessings that he even gives to us in our life. It's a sign that the curse of sin still influences and shapes our thinking and our behavior. And yes, it even causes us at times to be outright resistant and rebellious against God. And that's why I said a few moments ago that when we read that God so loved the world that it's really quite a remarkable statement that God would love such people like us. And yet, here's the fact. God indeed loves the world. God loves the entire populace of this world. God the Father has the same compassion and mercy and concern for everyone. God has love and compassion and mercy for the people that you and I might detest. He even has love and mercy and concern for the people who detest Him. God's love, you see, covers over a multitude of sin. Paul speaks like this too in our epistle lesson for today when he says because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy who is an abundant in mercy makes us alive with Christ even while we're dead in our trespasses and sins for it is by grace that you've been saved and so God's very nature is one of love and mercy for God is the creator of everyone in Isaiah 49, we read these words, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? And the answer is yes. Sadly, a mother can have no compassion for the child she gives birth for. So can father, by the way. But God says through the prophet Isaiah, Though she may forget, I will never forget. God will never forget because, you see, he loves each and every one of us. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our our whining and ungratefulness, God so loved the world. And we see that in our text where God so loved the grumbling and whining Israelites that he actually spared them, didn't he? For many of those who were bitten by the poisonous snakes could look at the snake that had been lifted up on a pole and they could look at that and God would heal them. And similarly, God comes to us and he invites us to look up at Jesus who was raised on a cross so that we might be healed. And that brings me to point two. For God so loved the world, that's that's the fact that He acted. He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. We confess this, this fact in the second article of the Apostles' Creed when, when we say, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. We confess the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for good reason, because you see, God the Father says of Jesus at His baptism and in His transfiguration, this is my Son. And even Jesus said of Himself, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. The earliest Christian creed was this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And indeed, he is Lord. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal. He was in the beginning, was the word, John 1 says. The Bible tells us that Jesus is unchangeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible tells us that Jesus is everywhere present, for Jesus promises, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And the Bible tells us that Jesus knows absolutely everything. For Thomas confessed, Lord, you know all things. And it was Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who the Father gave into death for rebellious, ungrateful humanity, for you and for me. I mean, who of us can comprehend a love so deep? But God the Father lifted His Son on the cross. The bronze snake was lifted up to save the Hebrew people from the bite of the venomous snake. And Jesus says that He too will be lifted up. That the Son of Man will be lifted up and whoever looks to Him will be saved. They will receive eternal life. And so Jesus was lifted up on that Good Friday so that, we might, so that He might save us from the venomous bite of sin and death. And this is, again, something that we confess in the explanation of the second article of the Apostles' Creed, where we say, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, has redeemed me from sin, from death, from the power of the devil, and he did it not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death. Who can comprehend such a love as this? The story is told of an earthquake that shook a seashore village about a hundred years ago in Japan. Now being accustomed to tremors, the villagers went back to their activities. But above the village, on a high plain, a farmer was observing the sea from his home. And as he observed the water, he noticed that the sea appeared dark and it was acting strangely. It was moving against the wind. It was running away from the land. And the old man knew what this meant. And his one thought was that he needed to warn the people of the village. And so he called to his grandson. He said, bring me the torch. Make haste. In the fields behind his home lay stacks of rice ready for the market. The rice was worth a fortune. And the man, he hurried out with his torch to that rice and in a moment the dry rice stalks were blazing and the villagers below saw the smoke and the temple bell began to clang with urgency. Fire, fire, fire. And so back from the beach, away from the strange seas, up the steep side of the cliff, raced the people of the village as they had but one objective. To save the crop of their rich neighbor. He's mad, some of them shouted. And as the villagers reached the plain, the old man shouted at them at the top of his voice. He said, look. And at the edge of the horizon, they saw a long, lean, dim line, a line that thickened as they gazed. And that line was the sea, and it was rising like a high wall, and it was coming swiftly as a kite flies. And then came a shock, heavier than thunder, a great swell struck the shore with the weight that sent a shudder through the hills and tore the homes apart like, like matchsticks. And the waves came back roaring again and again and again, smashing everything in their presence. And then it receded. It returned to its place. On the plain, no word was spoken. There was just stunned silence. Silence. And then the voice of the old farmer was heard. That is why I set fire to the rice. He stood now among them as the poorest of the poor. His wealth was gone, but he had saved 400 lives by his sacrifice. That's quite a dramatic story. That's quite a sacrificial story. For that old man gave up his wealth in order to save those people. But there's even a more dramatic story, isn't there? The one that unfolds in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With the drama climaxing on Good Friday, when an even greater sacrifice was made, not just for 400 people, but for the whole world, for all the people of this world, And that sacrifice being none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The fact is this. God our Father loves the world so much that He acted. And His Son acted by giving up His only begotten Son into death for us. And consequently, God has entered into a pact with us. And the pact is this, that whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. A pact, P-A-C-T, is defined by Webster's World Dictionary as an agreement between two people. It's a covenant. But in the pact that God establishes with us, there is nothing with which we can bargain. We bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to this deal. We have nothing to offer God. Not our works of love. Not our faith. Absolutely nothing. We have as a little chance of saving ourselves from the venomous bite of sin and death and the devil as did the Hebrew people from rescuing themselves from the bite of the poisonous snakes. If we're going to be saved at all, if we're going to experience eternal life at all with our Lord, it is by God's grace and God's grace alone. And that's why Paul says in the Epistle lesson that salvation is God's gift to us. But here's the strange and really sad thing many people reject this pact. Hard to believe, isn't it? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now he's inviting everyone in the world to enter into this pact, this covenant with him, so that they might receive forgiveness and be the recipients of eternal life as as opposed to eternal death. And people after people after people reject it. And yet God continues in his love for all people to reach out to them, to to continue to search for those people and to invite them into a relationship. One of the things that I was reviewing with the confirmants over at ISJ when I was teaching them confirmation recently was that I believe that I cannot believe. Think about that for a moment. I believe that I cannot believe. See, this is a biblical truth. Oftentimes we hear that we have to do something in order for God to love us, that we have to bring something to this table and bargain with God. Even our own faith, we often turn into a work that it's something I have to do. I have to believe so that God will forgive me. But the Bible makes it very clear, and we heard it in the epistle lesson for today, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We're incapable of believing in God. We're incapable of trusting in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. The belief that we have has been worked in our hearts through Jesus Christ. And so it's God and God alone who even creates faith in us. And again, this is something that we confess in the explanation to the third article of the Apostles' Creed. When we confess, as Martin Luther wrote, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. He's enlightened me with His gifts. He's sanctified and He's kept me in that one true faith. And so if we're going to believe and trust in the Lord, if we're going to look up to Jesus and be saved, then this is something that the Holy Spirit needs to create in our hearts and our lives. And that was the point that Jesus was making with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you want to live and experience life forever, then you need to be born again. And how are you born again? But with water and the Spirit. You're born again as the Holy Spirit comes into your life and through the power of the Word creates faith in your heart where there was no faith, and you trust in me, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, as your Savior and Lord. And what was true for Nicodemus is true for you and for, and for me and for all people. If we're going to truly believe in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit needs to come into our life and create faith in us. He needs to create the rebirth in us, and the way He does this is through the power of His Word. For many of us, this happened. This rebirth happened when we were baptized. And again... One of the beautiful things about infant baptism, for instance, is that an infant doesn't have much ability to do anything, does it? Does he or she? You look at an infant, and many people will even reject infant baptism because they'll say, well, an infant can't believe. You have to be able to believe in order to be baptized. And so they say, no, you have to be a certain age before you can be baptized because they're making faith at work, you see. But infant baptism testifies to the fact that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the baptismal font. And it's the Holy Spirit who creates faith in that infant through the power of his word. It's the Holy Spirit who keeps that infant strong in the faith until life everlasting. And what was true of the infant is true for the adult who is baptized in the name of the Lord as well. It's the Holy Spirit who creates faith in the heart of that adult. It's not that the, the adult can believe and then say, okay, now Jesus, I invite you into my life. No, it's the Holy Spirit who comes to that adult and through the power of that word creates faith in that person's heart. And then like the Ethiopian eunuch will say, what would prevent me from being baptized? And Philip said, nothing, let's go be baptized. And so God in his love for us not only sends Jesus Christ into this world to be our Savior, but he also in his love for us sends the Holy Spirit into our life through the power of his word through the sacrament of holy baptism, to bring us to faith and to keep us in that one true faith. And this pact that God establishes with us, it brings us so many gifts. I mean, just think of the gift that you and I have because God has established a pact with us, a covenant with us. We have the gift of prayer where we can talk with God anytime, anywhere, knowing that he'll hear us and answer us according to his mercy. We live each and every day knowing that all of our sins are forgiven because of Christ's shed blood on the cross of Calvary. We know that we have the Holy Spirit living in us through his word and that the Holy Spirit is producing in us fruits of faith. And then we think about how God brings us together collectively as a congregation so that we can encourage and support one another in our pilgrimage on earth. These are just some of the gifts that God brings to us in this pact, in this covenant. But the greatest gift of all is eternal life. Knowing that when we die, we'll simply live with the Lord forever in glory. In my midweek devotional this past week, I said, Jesus may have died for the sins of the world. But he died with your name on his lips. I was trying to personalize how much God loves each and every one of us. Because sometimes we can get caught up in the abstraction of God so loved the world. Well, what does that really mean? Well, the world means you. The world means me. The world means everyone. And Jesus Christ died with our names, with your name, my name on his lips. Maybe you have restated John 3.16 this way during your lifetime. Maybe you've heard it this way. For God so loved Glenn that he gave his only begotten son for Glenn. That believing by the power of the Holy Spirit, Glenn will not perish, but Glenn will have eternal life. Just insert your name into that verse. For you are the world. You are the world to Jesus. For God so loved, Put your name, that he gave his only begotten son for you. That believing by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, well, it is the gospel in the miniature. But as we have seen, its message is anything but miniature. The fact is, God our Father loves us so much that he acted by giving his only begotten Son into death for us so so that he might establish a pact with us, a covenant with us, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that, my friends, in Christ, is the whole gospel. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all our understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.